0: And welcome to Juxtapod, I'm Miriam Zaidi. I want to start off this episode by acknowledging that the transition from 2020 to 2021 has not felt as momentous this year. This new year, we're up against the same virus that changed our lives in 2020 and shed light on the strengths and shortcomings of every domain of society. While the effects of the pandemic have been overwhelming, There are so many thinkers, activists, and friendly neighbors trying to make a difference to support their communities. My guest today, Dr. Laura Rosella, is one of those people. She's the Canada Research Chair in Population Health Analytics and the lead of the Population Health Analytics Lab at U of T, among many other important positions in public health. As an epidemiologist, Dr. Rosella works with data to understand the effects of illness and disease. We spoke about the importance of community and taking an integrated approach, as well as the lessons we've learned from COVID-19. She talks about How's My Flattening, which is a research initiative that equips the public with a data-driven understanding of the pandemic. Through Dr. Rosella's insights, I learned that 2021 will be different. We're entering the new year with an awareness of the volatility of the virus and the importance of taking the necessary steps to reduce the transmission of COVID-19. Here's my conversation with Dr. Rosella. Dr. Rosella, now that we've made it through 2020 and we're moving into 2021, I'd like to ask you how your role as an epidemiologist has changed in the past year.
1: So this past year, obviously we've been experiencing COVID and we've been absorbing tremendous amounts of data and information on populations. And so the way it's changed, I mean, in some ways it hasn't changed because the work we do in the in the lab and with my chair is focusing on how we can use data on populations to inform public health and health system decision-making. So it's reinforced how important that work is more than ever. But it has changed because I've really appreciated the importance of real-time information. A lot of the work that we do involves data that's been collected in the past and we derive interesting scholarly insights from that. But the importance of having that data in as close to real-time as possible, I think that's been reinforced, so that's changed. And the second thing that's really changed is the importance of being clear in the communication of that data. So. We focused a lot on or I focused a lot on different methodologies to analyze population health data but less so on the visualization of that data, the communication of that data. And this year has really taught me how important that skill actually is and um, how important it is to communicate epidemiologic findings to a wide variety of decision makers.
0: For a lot of us, it feels like moving into 2021 is just a longer continuation of 2020. We're still navigating the pandemic, applying our learnings from last year. Is there anything from your research last year that is going to inform your research moving forward? And what's something that you're looking forward to in your research for 2021?
1: One thing that's really changed for me in the past couple years, and I think has been reinforced this year as well has been the importance of engaging with the community on the data that we are using and speaking to different stakeholders in the community and the community itself on their perspectives on data Uh, someone that spends a lot of time analyzing data and working a lot with big data sources I've really appreciated the value of that exercise and so I'm really looking forward to learning new ways to ensure that the community voice and the stakeholder voice is represented in the analyses that we do. And this is stretching me in terms of uh, my skill sets and also stretching our lab. That's what I'm really looking forward to going forward.
0: So speaking of the importance of community, you are part of so many different communities in all of your roles, specifically closer to home, you're the lead of the population health analytics lab at U of T. I'm wondering how your different roles intersect and work to inform one another.
1: This is a great question. Certainly from the outside, it looks like I'm wearing lots of hats and playing different roles. But for me, they all really play an essential role in the way that I look and view problems. So obviously being situated within the Dahlana School of Public Health and in the university, I am just, you know, surrounded by scholarly excellence from multiple disciplines so I'm really getting the academic rigor that comes with the disciplinary focus of all the different areas of the school and of the university and so that helps ensure that I'm up on the latest methods and I'm really approaching the problems that I'm interested in with rigor but my other roles like for example I've just took on a a research chair role Stephen family chair in community health at Trillium Health Partners And this role is so important to me because it's connecting me to community health in a population that uh, really means a lot to me. So I'm actually seeing the intersection between sort of healthcare and population health and how that affects a community and, and making connections with front care providers in the healthcare system, as well as community providers in social and community system. And so I'm actually getting that, dose of reality to the work that I do and it's from that experience that I draw my motivation you know I see the the struggles every day the problems that people are working towards the decisions that need to be made whether evidence is there or not and that's where I draw my inspiration from and you know the intersection between these different roles is really you know you need the rigor you need the ability to step back and think about things but you actually need to connected to seeing the impact and that's why those roles are important and then the last role I would say with um, organizations like ICES or the TKARAM Institute or Vector these roles also connect me with different disciplinary communities that really focus on the cutting edge of data and what data can do and so I draw a lot of inspiration from thinking beyond our typical ways to analyze data even sources of data I'm constantly inspired by the creative work that they're doing, the way we process data, uh, the way we visualize data. And so all these different roles play an important but complementary uh, role in the way that I look at problems this is actually how I think we should look at all problems from multiple lenses.
0: So as you've described in your work, you are interacting with people from different disciplines and backgrounds, as well as serving the interests of a large community of varying health issues and health concerns. How does population health as a discipline approach the many different intersections that will influence how the pandemic affects different groups of people?
1: You know, the answer I'm going to say is not, is, you know, you might think like, well, that's a generic answer. Um, But I think everyone actually appreciates it now experiencing COVID. And the answer is that it's incredibly complex and there's not one discipline or one approach or one paradigm that can drive it. And I think that's what makes population health so unique. The fact that you do need multiple disciplines. I mean, we take COVID for example, obviously we need very strong infectious disease expertise. We also see the policymaking process in response to COVID. So we need to understand how policies, what drives policy uh and what you know reinforces policy and and what happened in the past in terms of what we're experiencing now you need to understand health systems you need to understand how the public health system works and the healthcare system works and there's lots of ethical considerations when it comes to testing priority groups for for screening vaccination you know on and on there's so many ethical issues so It's a very complex space and the need for lots of different disciplines and perspectives working together, I think is more apparent in population health than almost any other application out there.
0: Thinking about the connection between illness and community, has the pandemic pointed out any cracks in our system for you, things that were lacking before, but we just couldn't see because we hadn't been hit with something like this?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a very important question. COVID I think has revealed some new things for us to think about but more than anything have brought to the surface or shed a light on issues that maybe were there all along Um, but we were seeing it in different ways or we weren't being it wasn't being reinforced as obviously as it is now. So there's two things that come to my mind. One is unfortunately the large health inequities that we continue to see in our health uh, on many health outcomes um, some health inequities that have been widening over time it's something that we study quite a bit in the lab just just in terms of a monitoring perspective obviously the inequities with COVID have been very wide very prominent very worrisome Um, but also you know the underlying root of those inequities existed before COVID and they will exist after COVID unless we change, you know, we put action towards that. So that's one thing that I think in terms of revealing cracks, it's a crack that's always been there in, you know, the health inequities that we are dealing with, many of which I were widening actually um, over time, and something that we just cannot ignore in terms of going forward. The other uh, aspects I'll say just really relate to data. And so certainly, in order to have a system that everybody wants which is you know real-time data transparency available but also privacy protected and ensuring that the you know right pieces of information are getting to the right people and there's no risks you know that takes investment uh, and a, a major investment from decades back so Um, I think we've appreciated that if we do want these data-driven insights, which I think we do, and we appreciate now very much, and there's been, you know, just a tremendous improvement in the availability and the sharing of information in real time. So I think there's been a lot of progress over over since compared to the beginning of COVID to now, but just maybe appreciating that this is something that we actually need to invest in it may not the use case may not be obvious at the point at which we're investing, but the idea that we need real near real-time data on populations on a regular basis that's of very high quality and that could be shared in a way that protects privacy is something that I hope was, you know, a crack that was revealed and that we can remedy by investing on it. Public health has been trying to do work with the data systems we have for a long time and maybe we haven't noticed that it's been tough for them and now we all see it it actually needs investment and so that's something I hope is a lesson learned that we can start to change.
0: An interesting phenomenon of this pandemic has been that people without A public health or data background have come to rely on publicly available data pertaining to COVID 19. So we'll Google what the infection rates are in our community or our province and compare that to another province to evaluate how much safer we might be and maybe use that to inform our decisions about safety measures we should be following. But a lot of us are doing this without the proper tools to actually interpret that data and deduce what that might mean for our actions. I'd like to talk about the House My Flattening project that you've developed with a team of researchers to remedy that, to provide the public with a toolkit to understand the data that's out there in a well-informed way. Can you tell us a bit more about that project, as well as, more generally, the importance of providing the public with a data-driven understanding of the pandemic? Right,
1: so I would say first and foremost, the most important thing to know about this project is that underneath it is an amazing group of people that have lots of different and diverse skills when it comes to data and just really passionate about making things happen. Many of who were volunteers in the beginning and just amazing uh, visionary leadership from people like uh, Ben Fine, uh, Farbad Aboulosani, uh Ali Asensoy, and there's many others. So I just want to, you know, emphasize that this is a collaborative effort that involves lots of different people who came together and just want to do something and were passionate about data and thought, okay, maybe we can make a difference. And so I think one thing we learned through the experience, I mean, it, it evolved over time. So initially it was just, you know, people with different skills coming together saying, we think we can be useful here, how can we be useful? And it was just sort of providing information, putting it together in a place that was accessible, easy to understand. Um, and then over time, we realized that it wasn't just sort of decision makers that needed the data. It was the general public and lots of people who weren't maybe had never looked at a cumulative incidence curve before or a daily rate of anything over before were actually interested. So then the attention really uh, shifted to, you know, uh, how could we make this information more understandable? to a, a wider audience and how can we make it more personalized people want to know more what's happening locally versus overall and so it's really changed um, over time but i think the main learning for me from this project and and we're very proud and lucky to work with all these people is that you know lots of different perspectives on how data should be displayed lots of expertise on you know efficient ways to gather data and make it routinely available and just a desire for for data from not just the policymakers who we were thinking would be the main audience for, in the beginning, but the general public and and people, you know, general public that are getting emails to their inbox now looking at, at the dashboards and the outputs provided.
0: Do you have any advice for somebody who is maybe overwhelmed by the categories available? Um, like you said, there's the incidence curve, and I noticed that you've just started to include a COVID ICU count where should people start? What are the most important numbers to look at to get a better understanding of the environment?
1: So I guess my number one piece of advice is to focus on trends versus just individual data points. I think there's always a, a wanting, you know, reaction to saying, oh, what are the cases today? And what, what are the, you know, what's happened today? And that's interesting, but really the most important thing in terms of what's happening and what's going to happen is sort of the longer term trends over time and so even the increase in cases that we've seen in the second wave that certainly didn't happen overnight it was a you know pretty almost painfully slow crawl up and so when you look on sort of week on week differences um, and sort of trends in terms of its increasing or decreasing that's the most important thing to take away as opposed to sort of individual numbers which can be daunting to absorb well what does you know, 250 ICU mean versus 280, like that is hard for people to absorb. But if you look at the trend um, that it's increasing steadily over time, that tells you something that tells you that the situation is getting quite worse and it takes time for that situation to get better once it gets to that point. And so that would be my main takeaway. The other would be sort of customize what you want to look at so one of the neat features that uh, Chris Gosling and uh, Morgan Lim um, have uh, and Farbot as well have really spent a lot of effort in in the last little while is um, personalizing it and so there's a geek mode and a not geek mode so if you really want to get into numbers and Look at all the graphs, um, you can do that. But if you just want a simplified sort of version to tell you on a quick glance, are things getting better, or worse, saying the same, that's available to you. So the idea of customizing it to what you need for what you're using it for is would be my next bit of advice.
0: Thinking about moving forward into the new year. We are continuing to face this virus, and we thought that a vaccine would be the end game, but now that we see the vaccine rolling out, we're still continuing to abide by social distancing measures and changing our daily lives in order to ensure that we reduce the transmission of the virus. What would you say to people that are going into this new year feeling anxious about all the unknowns?
1: I mean, I... I personally believe uh, it's actually quite important to acknowledge the situation and the challenges of the situation before moving on. So, and when I say, I, when I acknowledge, I don't just mean, oh, it's hard, it's gonna keep getting hard. What I mean is that it's really hard to adapt to constant change and constant uncertainty. As humans, it's difficult for us and that's what's happening all the time and we're we have more of it. So I think just taking a moment to say, this is hard, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling like this is hard and just sort of validating that, yeah, it is hard because there's a lot of uncertainty uh, about what's coming, but there's hope, a lot of really positive hope coming forward, the biggest one being the vaccine. I mean, we have a very effective intervention. Yes, there's challenges about supply and who's gonna get uh, vaccinated first and will we have enough, but, um, at least we have a vaccine and a safe and effective vaccine. I mean, that we can't underestimate what an accomplishment uh, that is and it's coming. Um, but I think that the other pieces are in terms of, you know, being realistic about, and unless cases um, come down significantly, we're probably in a similar situation uh, for the next little while. You know, COVID spreads by close contact, and so as soon as contacts start increasing, the risk of COVID is going to increase. And the restrictions that are in place now are mainly to reduce the contacts, and in time they will be effective. But unless there is a safe way to allow those contacts to happen again, either because there's vaccine or there's other, you know, screening, uh, testing, etc., uh, improved contact tracing in place. Um, it's always going to be a challenge that we're going to have to deal with. And so I think a bit of realism um, plus a bit of hope for the vaccine be my main takeaways and just acknowledging how difficult it has been, but how far we've come. I think it's important to put a bit of positive reinforcement back in terms of the fact that we have hope and the fact that we've actually come a long way when you look back. And there's lots of things to, you know, be fixed, but there have been some successes along the way.
0: Based on what you've just said, talking about herd immunity and long-term immunity, that kind of thing, as an epidemiologist with your understanding of how these kinds of illnesses, diseases work, what Mm -hmm. is going to be the effect of a vaccine? You know, when will we be able to stop relying on social distancing and these kinds of measures? When will we be able to say that the vaccine has done what it needs to do? Is there a certain number of people vaccinated that we need to achieve? Is there a time frame? How does Mm -hmm. that work? So in,
1: you know, there's been several modeling studies, which help us understand based on how infectious uh, disease is how what you know, what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated in order to sort of generate that immunity, that it's not as much of an issue anymore. And, you know, the numbers, bat around based on different models but anywhere from 60 to 80 percent um, i I tend to think it's a bit probably more on the higher end of that and so you do need the majority of the population vaccinated before we can feel comfortable that this is not going to be an issue but I think one thing to keep in mind again this is just to be realistic is that you know there's still going to be a case that pops up if the whole population that not vaccinated. And then all the investigations and isolation and all the things, contact tracing, um, needs to happen regardless. We can't sort of say, well, oh, there's a case, but most of the population is vaccinated probably we'll still have to make sure that we're doing all the public health follow-up and making sure that it's not going to lead to an outbreak and potentially hit a pool of unsusceptible, uh, susceptible uh, individuals who may not have been uh, vaccinated. And so my, real, my realistic advice is to say you know vaccine will be hugely successful at once most people get vaccinated but I think COVID's here uh, in terms of us having to deal with it for a long time. Not not in, we won't have the massive restrictions or major public health measures and closures if our vaccine is successful at the population level, but we will still have to deal with it as, you know, cases will continue to pop up. We still have some, also some questions about whether vaccines need to be uh, updated over time and long lasting immunity. These are all answers we can't be definitive on because we haven't had enough time to actually see that roll out and study it.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with Dr. Laura Rosella. In the spirit of our data-focused episode, I'd like to end off by sharing some statistics regarding vaccinations in Ontario. I accessed this via the How's My Flattening website, which you can reach at howsmyflattening.ca. If you're an Ontario resident, you can access various statistics that describe to you the situation of COVID-19. Among other statistics, the website shares the up-to-date count of vaccine doses given to date. As of this episode, there have been 276,146 people vaccinated. This represents 0.5% of the eligible population. As always, you can follow us along at Juxta Magazine U of T on Instagram, and let us know what conversations you'd like to hear next. I'll see you on our next episode.